Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host, Edmar Ferreira, will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Peter Reinhardt, CEO and co-founder at Charm Industrial, where they're developing novel carbon removal and renewable industrial syngas technology. Prior to Charm Industrial, Peter was CEO and co-founder at Segment, a SaaS customer data platform which grew to 600 people before it was acquired by Twilio in 2020 for $3.2 billion. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. I'm here today with Peter from Charm Industrial. Peter, take us to the future. Tell us a little bit about how the world would look like when you guys are really, really successful. Thanks for having me. I think if Charm is really, really successful, we will get the atmosphere back down to something like 280 parts per million CO2, which is like pre-industrial CO2 levels. And hopefully what that means is there's not as many crazy wildfires going on. We don't see as much kind of tidal flooding. We don't see ecosystems kind of totally changing. We don't feel rainfall patterns totally changing. So hopefully we just kind of feel this relaxation of the climate around us getting better and and hopefully everything becomes, I don't know, just much more less tense and, and scary in the world around us. Um, I think there's a lot of people who face a lot of anxiety every day about uh, what's happening to the climate. So hopefully that eases. I worry that, I know this isn't the answer you're looking for, but I worry actually that this giant spike of heat that we're basically putting into all our climate ecosystems is warming up things that have feedback effects. So we're warming up the tundra, warming up the oceans. And in both of those places in the tundra, there's there's methane stored in the surface. And in the oceans, there's methane clathrates that are reasonably sensitive to temperature. And so I, I worry actually that even if we are successful in our mission of getting back to 280 parts per million CO2 and, and sort of returning to pre-industrial levels, that we will have kind of kicked this system with a big a big kick that then starts releasing these these feedback effects of methane emissions and so on. It's actually already 10% of emissions are, are feedback effects. So I think that will actually be the new challenge. Even when we're successful, yeah. the new challenge will be dealing with these, <laughs> this, these feedback effects. And what you guys are today, like what's the company and the solution looks like today at what stage you guys are in? Yeah, Charm is uh, it's about 35 people and we are taking... Waste biomass, agricultural residue, things like corn straw and wheat straw and fuel load reduction from, from forest treatments. We're taking that waste biomass and we cook it into barbecue sauce, literally the natural smoke flavor of barbecue sauce, make it massive industrial quantities of it, and then inject that deep, deep underground. And that basically removes the carbon from the atmosphere because you've got CO2 going into the plants. The carbon remains in the barbecue sauce that, that gets injected. And so we're, we're permanently removing carbon from the atmosphere and uh, have customers like Stripe and Microsoft and Shopify and Zendesk and Figma and, and so on. So we put carbon underground for them. How one starts a company like that? What's the idea came from? Like, what's what's your background? Like, how did you start to thinking about a thing like that? Yeah, my my original kind of training uh, in university was was aerospace engineering. But then I, I started a software company with my roommates, very cliche Silicon Valley kind of story. Yeah, uh, we dropped out and built a software company called Segment that we grew to about 600 people. And in the course of building that, we, we looked at offsetting our emissions. And basically, I discovered that there were no good offsetting products, that they were all pretty dubious in terms of their actual climate impact. 
and we're mostly kind of like fronts for various social causes, which are great, or environmental sort of ecological causes, which again are great and should be funded on their own merits. But we're kind of hacked into this carbon offsetting, carbon impact system that doesn't make any sense. And so it was really like the lack of a good product in terms of carbon removal that actually then ultimately I got really motivated to to, to go solve and uh, found some great co-founders with amazing hardware experience and together trying to build a great product in carbon removal. Did you have like a phase between segment and now that where you start looking at ideas or you had this idea while you were into it and it was something that was always in the back of your mind that you keep growing inside of you or how, how did it happened? Yeah. Tactically in 2016 or 2015 is when I first purchased offsets via segment. 2016 is when I realized that what we had purchased was probably not doing anything in terms of impact. Like the forest could have burned down or could have just logged the one next door. Like it was not, we weren't getting yeah. anything positive out of it. So that was 2016. 2017, I started spending Saturdays throughout the year. Um, so I was still running a software company and started spending Saturdays looking at modeling, doing techno-economic modeling of different pathways for industrial decarbonization and carbon removal. And, you know, a lot of dead ends, <laughs> like a lot and a lot of dead ends yeah. in the economic models or the science or looking at different research papers and so on. And then after a little bit more than a year of that, uh, we settled on an idea. And in parallel to running Segment, I uh, helped raise money and helped kind of organize and coordinate things at Charm for, for several years. And then when Charm was about four, so just earlier this year in January, I officially left Segment after it was acquired by Twilio and went full-time on Charm. Where did you start to, like, going back to, even though why you, you started doing the offset thing in Segment? Where did it came from, this idea of doing that? Back then was like, when did you say that? 2016? 2015, yeah. 15, yeah. Why did you decide to do that? Where did it came from, that idea came from? Yeah, I think it came from generally at Segment, we had a, a culture and a cultural value we called karma, which was like, do the right thing for the companies and people and world around us. Um, good value to have. Yeah. You should reuse that one. <laughs> that one is good. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. So we had a few at karma, tribe, drive, and focus, but those are the four values as articulated at Segment. And Yeah. The the karma value basically was like, yeah, we should we should have this positive impact on the world around us. And in a lot of ways, a segment that ended up being focused on third party versus first first party data. We were, we were a customer data company and we, we really thought that third party data was bad and very creepy, as often informed by our moms who were creeped out by uh, third party <laughs> data. And so we were like very focused on even trying to get legislation passed that would drive towards first party data. And in the end, the world has come around to that, which was cool. So it had it had several overtones, but I think that's ultimately where it came from. And of course, that value and the actual activities that resulted from it in terms of offsets and data and so on has value in terms of recruiting. But I think it came from a values place. And then, you know, we tried to make sure people understood that that's what the company really stood for. And here were examples of how we were living it. This is interesting. I, you, I have been seeing a trend, Franklin, With this podcast, when I'm interviewing people, where I'm seeing a lot of founders that did a first software startup or first, what do I say, like more traditional startup. And instead of just like cashing in and having a boat or an island or whatever, or like a big house or whatever, they do it again. But in general, like harder problems or like more 
different hard deep tech type of of things so which is really which is really interesting to see this happening and i think it's going to happen more and it's going to be transformational the second time founders going into other areas why you decided to keep in the game instead of just like chipping out and like i don't know retiring like moving to a beach somewhere and <laughs> doing some say la pinas coladas yeah. or something like that <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a fair question. I, I think, though, that most people who start companies don't do it for like a rational reason. Yeah, you know, it's not done. Yeah. It's done for some like deeper psychological thing that's just like off. <laughs> and I don't think that selling a company or leaving a company or whatever, like changes, whatever it is in that black box, that's like a little off. I don't think yeah. changes as a result of that. And so, I mean, like I would, I would be so unhappy. I would be so unhappy in a retired state. And I think that's true. That has been true. That's not a recent phenomenon. I think that's been true for, for ages for entrepreneurs or founders yeah. um, where there's, there's some deeper itch to scratch and doing another thing is pretty natural. I mean, yeah, I would, I get bored very, like if I, if I try to take a two week vacation by the end of two weeks, I'm like dying. I like, I need intellectual stimulation and yeah. like a project yeah. to be passionate about and working on. I think I agree with you on that part, but I feel that it's a different thing I would risk say happening right now. I think that the, on the entrepreneurial side, 100% agree, but what catches my attention is like, it's like the type of companies that those founders are starting. It's just not like another software company or another in the same area. They are like branching out and migrating. It's a little bit like, let's say, Elon Musk with his like rocket thing and, and going from like software thing and could be just a one-time thing. But I see a lot of other founders going into like chips for AI or like yourselves doing carbon, which is like a big problems. I think that this... Maybe something different about the type of entrepreneur, maybe that goes into tech that then decides to tackle like hard problems or things like that. I think that yeah, this is for, like. I mean, there's definitely a way of going into more climate and sort of like other areas of impact. I, I think there's partly software is maybe a little played out in that like you need a transformation in the hardware to enable a whole new class of pieces of software, right? So we got like the desktop and then we got like a whole wave of software as a service and enterprise yeah. software behind that. And then we got mobile phones and that was like a whole wave of app development but like to a significant extent these things are kind of played out now maybe machine learning is an interesting frontier there but largely then like where are the other opportunities and honestly even software isn't even that big like all of software global revenue is like 500 billion a year something like that let's double it and call it a trillion a year like yeah. it's just not that much and that's revenue but if you look at like if you look at climate like what is climate going to drive in terms of like change of industrial capacity like our entire industrial base has to roll over power vehicles yeah. chemical production steel production concrete production like the entire industrial base has to rotate over and so when you look at not revenue you look at the amount of ebitda profit that has to roll over yeah. in the next yeah. 30 years we're talking about like 10 trillion ebitda yeah so this is like this is like a hundred x larger of an economic transformation a hundred x as compared to yeah. software so yeah. I think if you're going and building another software company, you're kind of fighting an uphill battle relative to starting a company in this like massive industrial change that's going to have to happen. So I think also if you're really looking more outside of software, if you're looking at like world trends, 
it, like your yeah. opportunity set is a hundred X bigger by just not going into software. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now as compared to 10 years ago. Yeah. This is a good, this is a good take. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. If, if, even if you look at the U S like as a percentage of the GDP, like healthcare, it's like huge, like as, as a percent mm-hmm. of the whole, like driving GDP, you have like whole industry, like it's like huge. $10 trillion it's huge. or something like that. It's huge. And the, and the cost proportion is growing and the total cost is growing. But what's even crazier is that if you condition on lifespan on age 30 and you say like, how much improvement have we made? If, if you assume, okay, this person gets to age 30, like how old do they live then? So you sort of cut out child death and you say like, how much have we improved in the last like 40, 50 years? It's like basically not yeah. at all. So like the enough, costs yeah. are just exploding for like exploding. absolutely no improvement whatsoever. Yeah. It's, it's having like 20, 30 years just exploding. Like the graph is ridiculous. Like I think it's, Healthcare and um, education as well. The cost of education in the states are just like ballooning over and over in housing and, and a lot of things. Yeah. So th- those three are super ripe. No one has like the slam dunk yet, but super ripe, super ripe. Yeah, and really impactful, impactful things like like the, mm-hmm. the climate and and all of that. Yeah, I think there's a thing about founders. I think the whole Silicon Valley startup type of culture about impact that makes that pushes it a little bit as well like like the measurement is not exactly the dollars the dollars are more like a proxy for impact than anything else at least when i talk to founders i see this a lot it's like it's like the competition is not to be rich in the sense of like the biggest house or some shitty things like that's more the impact is more like what drives people to make it which yeah which would be that's definitely when you see like the that's def- the first like generation like the Vanderbilts and things like that like after a while those guys need to do something with their money like build like uh, opera houses and things like that this is what old rich people used to do I think that the new generation of like engineers some more like nerdy types of people with money those guys are going to build a different type of things not another opera house or another like museum it's going to be some kind of new tech and this is going to be a net positive that are going to be different from the world. I think this is a different phenomenon from like, I think it's the first time that people with like engineer hearts have enough money and resources to actually go after like ambitious things by themselves without asking for permission from other people. I think this is going to be fun to watch the next couple of, of years unfolding guys like yourself doing a lot of interesting things. <laughs> Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think there's certainly a selection bias where like people who haven't cared about or don't care about impact or or just like are purely in like a sort of money race, I think have selected into other industries. Oh. Skill sets, maybe not not necessarily engineering, right? Like maybe go into finance or, or something like that. And so yeah, maybe. I do think you accumulate yeah. you accumulate in this engineering set like people who are after something different. Yeah, definitely. There's that and there's another selection bias that I didn't talk about that that I thought about that you're saying, imagine that the guys who actually cash in and just go buy a mansion and disappear, we don't hear about them as well, right? The ones that sell the company and go out, you don't hear about them because they don't start another company. So you don't, you don't remember them anymore. There's this selection bias as well that, that probably is into my, yeah. my discussion. So let's talk a little bit about what people tend to get wrong like when you explain what you guys are doing or to new employees, investors, or the market in general, like what people seems to have trouble understanding or 
usually have this misconception about you? Two things. One is a misconception about what it means to inject something underground. This is like a, a weird thing that doesn't have a lot of like intuitive uh, kind of uh, <laughs> stuff going on. So maybe we'll start there. When you inject something underground, actually 10% of the United States liquid waste is injected. A huge proportion of that is oil field waste. So when you bring oil up from below, it's not pure oil. You actually get like 80% brine and 20% oil. So what do you do with the, with the brine? We actually re-inject it back into these formations down below. Also, like 30 to 50% of Los Angeles's sewage is injected into the subsurface. Similarly, in Florida, a large proportion of sewage is uh, injected into rock structures. Significant amounts of hazardous and non-hazardous waste are disposed of into injection walls across the U.S. So there's a, there's a lot of injection that happens, and it's totally invisible. It also, the number one concern that the EPA very successfully had and regulated in the 80s was about impact on drinking water. So like, that's everyone's first concern, right? It's like, of yeah. course, it's like, what happens if you inject this stuff? Does it affect drinking water? EPA is on top of it. They've been on top of it for 40 years. Like, it's the underground safety, underground injection control for underground safe drinking water. And so and basically... It's like under, underground control for any type of injection, basically, because they needed to do it yeah. before because they, there's a lot of people injecting things. They need to regulate things before... Because people were already injecting things anyways. Totally. And they're super careful about it. And basically, there's two things that the EPA regulates there. One is when you inject, you have to go super, super deep underground, way like thousands of feet below these drinking water uh, sources. And then as you inject, you might have to pass through a source of drinking water. So how do you ensure that you're not leaking? It's very clever how this works. Basically, there's an outer casing on a, on a well and an inner casing. You inject through the inner casing, and then around the, the annulus between the inner and outer casing, you pressurize it with brine, and you measure the pressure on that. And if you ever see a drop in pressure, then you know you have an oh, issue. You stop yeah. injection, you fix it, and then you can continue. But as long as the pressure is maintained, you know that for the entire length of the tube, you've got a seal. Yeah. So really clever, clever methods like that. Yeah, that, it's a clever mechanism to do that. So anyways, injection is a common thing. Also, people think that you're injecting into like a void. When you inject into these deep spaces, you're injecting into sandstone that's literally acting like a sponge. So it's like 10 to 40% open pore space and it just sucks up liquids Got that it. you inject into it. Oh, I see. Uh, another sort of common, common misconception is, this is fairly, again, fairly technical, but uh, in biomass, People often are under the impression that like biomass is sort of widely used and, and cheap and you just kind of ship it to a facility and, and, and do stuff with it. And there's a very academic concern that often comes up, which is like, well, if you're going to use biomass for something like it's already being used, so you have to account for the impacts. The vast majority of biomass is not used for anything today. It just rots where, it, where it's grown. Yeah. And beyond that, the other misconception is like, oh, you can just transport it. But biomass, and this is a little hard to kind of intuit, but biomass is very fluffy and it's very yeah. distributed. And so transporting it is like a total nightmare and blows the economics of just about anything built on biomass. And so what's really weird about what Charm is doing is we're building machines that are highly mobile, basically build tractors that go out and process the biomass in place into a dense liquid that then we transport instead of dealing with the fluffy, trying to transport the fluffy stuff to a central chemical plant. Tell us a little bit about, about how the mechanics of the capture work a little bit for uh, the layman's terms, how it sucks the, the carbon into it, like how it, how it, how it works. Yeah, so you have uh, CO2 in the atmosphere that 
when plants are growing, they are sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and building cellulose, like long-chain sugar polymers in their stalks and leaves and, and, and so on. So they're capturing the CO2 and converting it into, into, into sugars. Then we'd basically take those plants and cook them. So we change it from a solid form to a liquid form effectively. And that, but that same carbon is the carbon that came out of the atmosphere. And then after we inject it, it's permanently stored deep, deep, deep underground. So that's kind of the, the mechanics of the pathway. Today, what type of go-to-market do you guys have? Like, how do you go around like closing companies and how it's the more like the sales and go-to-market strategy works nowadays? Yeah, what we found is that there's a set of software and financial services companies, for the most part, who want to kind of do the right thing for the broader world, much like I, I did at Segment. And as part of that, they want to mitigate their emissions or at least their historical emissions. To some extent, they can control it, right? They can buy clean power for their offices. They can reduce beef consumption in their provided lunches and, and do more chicken instead. They can maybe reduce flights. But at the end of the day, they're going to have some salespeople or, or executives who are going to need to fly around. And those emissions, like there's no option for flying without burning fossil yeah. fuels today. And so they have to eliminate something. And so then they look to purchase carbon removals if they're being advised by good scientists. And then we often, you know, there's only there's only two companies actually delivering carbon removals right now, permanent carbon removals. That is Charm Industrial, you know, my company, uh, we delivered about 5,400 tons last year. And then Climeworks uh, probably delivered, we don't know for sure, but delivered about 1,000 tons last year. So that's it. Yeah. That's the whole, that's that's the whole thing. Doing that. Yeah. What? Yeah. And, and that's what? a tiny number. Like we're, we're sort of proud of, of, you know, how much we've, we've done there, but you know, obviously 6,000 tons as an industry is nothing compared to the 50 billion tons that are getting emitted. And we need to grow as an industry, we need to grow to about 10 billion tons a year by 2050. So it's like 65% compound growth for 28 years. So going back to when we're talking about market size, like yeah. it's a massive, it's, massive market, massive room. So you guys will not right now have like more like an inbound, like, type of demand then because it's just you yeah we're starting to switch companies. we're starting to switch more to reaching out we have one one salesperson harris on the team and uh he, he started reaching out to more of the sorts of companies that we already see buying but yeah for the most part our purchases have been have been folks who are trying to offset and and they come and find us largely through stripe shopify and microsoft publishing the portfolios that they purchased from and yeah. all of them purchased from us I think that after going after those guys, like the challenge would be the second part of it when we're the guys who are not actively doing that or actively and convince folks that this is a good idea, that we need them to do that. In the... But I think that there's sort of like a trend toward that anyway. There's, there's like a, a strong trend going on that those people would see the importance of it. They like the, the trend is going to come, come around. And what did surprise you about this company? Like after you started it, like what surprised you? What was the unexpected things that you learned starting this company? I think that a transition from software to hardware can be, seems like it should be harder in some ways, but it really depends on the team that, you assemble and there's a lot that's the same right like leading a team from a communications perspective from a recruiting perspective from a finance perspective from an hr perspective from a like marketing perspective from a sales perspective like all of these functions are the same and 
uh, or largely the same. Whereas, like, of course, the hardware engineering part is very different. Manufacturing, very different. Supply chain, very different. Uh, so there are obviously parts that are very different. But let's be honest, when I dropped out of college and started Segment, I didn't know how any of these things worked. So now at least I know how, like, half of them work. Uh, yeah, so I think people somewhat overestimate the the difficulty predicated on being able to recruit and find great co-founders and a team that can that knows how to actually build hardware and knows how to do science and and systems engineering and all these things so um yeah i think i think people i think people maybe shy away from taking a stab at it and i think more people could be successful so I, i think the learning for me was one of like increased internal locus of control like i I think in climate too often we when people look at the climate problem they like think that someone else is going to take the initiative and solve it and and you kind of see this actually like even even incredible activists like greta thunberg who like is incredibly impressive as a a young person and uh, but like her her what she advocates for is like it's not my job to solve the problem it's my job to be an activist to get the government to solve the problem and yeah that's an external looks of control, right? That's basically like, I can't solve the problem directly. I need someone else to solve it. And to solve it for me. She's a child. Yeah. She's a child. That's fine. <laughs> but but yeah. like, I think as a society, we too often look at that, look at it that way, as opposed to saying like, yeah, it's a problem. I'm, I'm going to go solve it. And I think more people yeah. can and should bring that internal locus of control. Yeah. I think I get that it's a little bit more like, yeah, like we should certainly solve that problem. Like someone should, someone, not me should be solving that problem. It's an important problem. I think that there is a lot of this going around. I think that uh, Peter Thiel called this, what's, what's the way he says about it? He says that it's like a indefinite optimism of the future. Like he says that there's two types of optimism about the future. One is like, indefinite with where people say things going to be fine because we're going to do something about it and the future is going to be good but i don't know how we're going to get that and we have people who are like more like defined good future where like okay it's going to be good because we're going to do y c and b and then we're going to do so so this is i think in his book he says that america changed from a society where there used to be a more defined positive future looking like okay the future is going to be good and we're going to do something about it to a more like indefinite but still positive future like it's going to be fine someone's going to do something about it peter's going to solve it for us let's <laughs> let's <laughs> other people do that let's that's so this is i i definitely see that happening not only in america i mean i think i think in the in the whole world to be frankly that type of hopeful future without a plan which is kind of scary to my point of view, like uh, being hopeful. It's better than be despair, but being hopeful without a plan is kind of scary when I think about it. Like, could work. Yeah, and the point of know. a plan, is, and the point of a plan is not that it's right. The point of a plan is that you actually start executing, and then you learn what the plan yeah. should really be. But, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think I think more people should just start whatever the problem is that they like are passionate about or are like nervous about, anxious about. Like, great, go work on it, take yeah. a stab on it. And what advice? would you give to like a founder who is like in this dabbling about like starting a deep tech company and thinking about it? Like what, what advice would you give? I think the, I see some common patterns of how product market fit often fails. 
which is I think people get emotionally attached to a particular solution or a particular idea, and then it makes it very hard to kill. This happened to me in segments early days where I first thought that we should be a classroom lecture tool and then thought that we should build an analytics tool. And it turned out that both of those are bad ideas, but I had become very attached to the idea and become very attached to how I felt like the world should work there and wasn't really open or honest about the feedback that I was getting from customers. And so that caused us to fail and spin our tail for like a year and a half and like got to a really dark place. Like I lost like 20 pounds in two weeks and went to the hospital multiple times for anxiety attacks and like it was bad. And I think now going through it a second time and seeing friends like dig into things, I think being non-committal actually, which is quite painful, but being non-committal to a specific idea, but being sort of committed to an area of like, I don't know what I'm going to do in this area, but like there's something here and I'm just going to keep futzing around. And like, even if you have an idea, like actually trying not to get emotionally attached to any particular idea until it's been really, really deeply validated. Spending a year or two like mucking around in the research papers and talking to researchers and talking to other startups that have tried and failed in that area and talking to regulators, like all of these really gathering all the data before committing to an idea, I think is maybe like a general product market fit principle. But with deep tech, once you kind of commit to an area, you might have many years of R&D to invest yeah. uh, before you get to a thing. And if you kick off those many years of R&D to invest and you end up at the end with something that is a fit, like you just wasted yeah. so many years and so much money, it's excruciating. And the second thing, so that's thing one. Thing two is, is an observation that I think many deep tech companies, even the ones that succeed, have a tendency to spend many, many, many years perfecting the technology or the, the solution before starting go-to-market. And one of the things that I, I learned a segment was like building the go-to-market machine is its own giant project. Like it is a hard thing to build sales and marketing. And I came into it feeling very, that segment being like, sales and marketing, like that's like yucky stuff that like, yeah. I'm sorry, you're building a business. <laughs> like, yeah. you need that is to do yeah. And realizing how hard it is means that it takes time to build a distribution muscle. And so yeah. at Charm, we've tried to be very creative about how to start building the go to market distribution and fulfillment, like customer success, logistics operations. How can we parallelize that track with, with our R&D? So as an example, we don't produce all of our bio oil today. Like what's weird about what we're doing is actually the injection. So to help accelerate, go to market and learn as fast as possible about actual physical operations, we are buying bio oil, waste bio oil and injecting it into third-party injection wells. We are buying off the shelf pyrolyzers that will operate to produce our own bio oil and inject. And we're of course doing R&D on our own machine. But we basically, we use R&D as a way of vertically integrating and, and accomplishing margin and cost reduction or margin expansion. Yeah. I would look at it as opposed to like, Oh, we're going to go perfect our pyrolyzer for three years. And then we'll start figuring out how to do everything. And then figure it and out. So I think, yeah, parallelizing these company building distribution operation, et cetera, with R and D I think is really important for having a deep tech company be de-risking itself as a business, as opposed to just a technology. Yeah. I think both are really great practical tips to have in mind. Like the first one I haven't, thought about i mean as a founder i know the problem of 
falling too much in passion with a single idea that maybe is not like the best idea fit. This is a problem that's, as you said, it's really common. But I haven't thought about how this is even more, uh, I'd say that's so much worse than deep tech. So much worse. Mm. Could be so much worse because I think that's the velocity of checks. It's it could kill it, could, it definitely would kill you in a software startup could kill you but in the deep tech could be like choosing the wrong thing and just sticking to it in a way that is just like to to put in your identity on an idea I think it's kind of a little bit like how founders sometimes go into it like it's almost like becomes part of who you are and then it's like losing a piece of you letting it go that idea and. I think the second part about the go-to market is interesting as well because sometimes when I talk with founders in deep tech, they seem to hope, almost a little bit like hope for not success in a way, like in a way that they would like sell it before they need to do the the go-to market a little bit. This is really common in in biotech, like instead of like we're going to create the tech and then we're going to sell it to some like big farmer and they are going to do the go-to-market type of thing that we so that we will not do it because we don't want actually to do it. I think that both of your advice came from a place where it's hard to admit reality, maybe. Both in the sense of admitting that you need to do the go-to-market thing and you kind of kid yourself that you don't need to do that or it's, it's not that hard or it's not that important. But in the end, you need to do that and you procrastinate on it because... It's not that cool. And on, on the other yeah. sides, that it's not that cool not having your own idea being the one that's going to actually solve the problem. So it's hard to admit that. So I like both. Both advice is really strong. I found that a lot of, almost all of the hard-earned like lessons of management or, or being a founder or entrepreneur or whatever, for me, have been cases of dishonesty to myself that once I resolved yeah. the, once I started being honest with myself about what actually needed to happen or what the yeah. reality was in the world, everything got easier. And it was, it was like almost entirely in my head. Another example is hiring, hiring and marketing. Like I really struggled to find a great marketer. And in the end, I like really struggled. Like it was like the, I think the fifth hire uh, was the successful one. And ultimately I, admitted to myself that all I really cared about was lead generation. <laughs> that was what I really wanted. What I really wanted was leads. And yes, yeah. I cared about brand. And yes, I cared about content. And yes, I cared about developer evangelism. But actually, what I really cared about yeah. was leads. And once I actually, yeah. that felt very that felt very gross t- to me. But once I yeah. admitted that, we hired a fabulous demand generation person and they were fabulously successful because that was actually what it- we needed. This is a thing that I have struggled myself a lot of times and how one goes around like developing that type of, let's say, self-honesty, let's say, like this thing about like being able to, because it's, it's so strange when you explain it to people that not being true to yourself sounds like something that's not possible, but it actually happens quite, quite often, actually. Self-deception, maybe it's a better word, maybe. How... Do you think about one can go around improving on that area? I think that being being young, it's a detriment to that. Usually when you are younger, you tend to be more self-delusional most of the time. And as you age, maybe goes off. But I know old people that are pretty self-delusional though. So 
I find that it's mostly about social acceptance for the thing. So, like, or social pressure. In, in as a developer, and let's take this marketing example. As a developer, I was surrounded by other other engineers, or as, as an engineer, I was surrounded by other engineers, and you know, it's sort of a cultural thing that like sales and marketing is not that well respected as an engineer, and you also don't really want to do this like this like dirty stuff of lead generation is like it's kind of dirty, yeah, it's, and so. The types of marketing that are more appealing are brands, developer evangelism, great content. Those sorts of things are, are forms of marketing that are more accepted. And so it's actually more like a, not even explicit, but like an implicit social pressure of like what's valued that I think is different than from first principles. The problem was that we wanted more leads so that we would generate more revenue. But that was hard to admit yeah. because it would have meant a, a decrease yeah. in, in status with, with peers. Right? Yeah, make makes sense i totally feel that because i started my company to be like an ai company and ended up becoming the ceo of a SaaS b2b content marketing company so it was like <laughs> at some point i was there like just dealing with 50 sales guys and lead gen and what the hell i'm doing like this is, i turned to the dark side at some point i started thinking about it like i want to i want to code i want to, to do the engineering part what the hell all those sales people why <laughs> well and, and now put yourself start... in the shoes put yourself in the shoes of the phd student who has discovered a new drug spins it out with their professor or whatever into a pharma company all their friends are other scientists. Do they want to do go to market? No, that would be selling out. No, yeah, that would be like, out, that's yeah. the dark side, right? So of course they're not interested in yeah. doing it. And, and I think for highly technical people, there is this almost like it happens in music as well and in art a little bit. This, uh, this, this, this shadow of this concept of selling out around people's minds in general, I think. It's, most people that are, are not in the tech, like, programming things would not imagine that but there's a lot of it inside the programming culture as well a little bit like a band who sell out or things like that we do have this culture around coding as well that is definitely there i don't know where it came from but definitely it's a little bit like there which has its good parts as well that's this is a little bit of of the integrity of the of the profession of doing good stuff, of creating good things and making an impact. I think it's a little bit both sides of it together there. So I mean, a healthy business, a healthy business has a balance of these things, right? It has yeah great sales and fundraising and marketing that enable investment in fantastic product because of the margins and economic leverage that they generate, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's. Uh, takes a while to get there. One thing that that helped me a little bit was like trying to look at the complexities and 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 the, how the actually the techniques in sales and marketing exist. There's like a whole there's some cool stuff there as well. There's some hard things that you can learn and and and, and create. And then this is, takes a little bit off. I think there's a lot of lack of knowledge or thinking about marketing and sales that's simple mm -hmm. and easy or shady that makes this kind of thing. And when you go into it, you know, learn how difficult it is to build that thing then you start interesting a little bit more being more interesting we are heading to the end i have still two questions to end here so first one do you have any recommendations of book tv show movie video game anything for us there's only one business book that i'd recommend which is called seven powers and it describes the only seven 
long-term defensible moats, advantages that a business can have. Everything else is pretty much discardable, but but that I think is like actually correct and has deep insights about kind of the the nature of of business that have applied both to segment as a software business and and charm uh, separately. So that's that's a book I would yeah, recommend. Yeah, it's good. This is a gr- really great recommend. I have read a lot of business books. And to be honest, most of them are not that good. I don't know why. Like the general like business literature, it's like a general that's not that good. Seven Powers is a great book. Like I haven't read it in a while, but it's really good. It's really good. It's on that category of books that actually there is some useful, smart content inside it, something that you can actually use. And the other book that I'd recommend is uh, is The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. He is like a he was an early age chess champion, and what yeah. he articulates is this: how the pace of learning is really correlated with with depth first. That like you make the most progress when you go super deep into one area, uh, which I think is pretty relevant to to deep tech, uh, and I, I've certainly found to be true. But his story is very inspiring as a chess champion, and then like a martial arts champion, and and so on. But I think in deep tech in particular, like as you are figuring out the business, these very, 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 very deep scientific things have massive repercussions in what the business is that it gets built and, and how it gets structured. And so I find it particularly applicable to this like depth first approach. This he's he's the guy who was like a, a chess and then he went to Tai Chi or something like that, right? This Tai Chi mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, it's a really cool guy. Really interesting. I have read this book but a long time ago should revisit it because it was really there's some books that you need to read more than once that you just mark that I should go back to this book again just just once once is not enough to like drive all of the things that are in there this is one of those as well cool and my last question if you could send a message to everybody on earth every person what message would you send get started this is good. This is a good one. <laughs> this is an amazing one. Whatever it is, thank for you, you so much. Get started. Get started. Yeah, thanks so much. This for is a me. good message. Thank you, man, so much. Hope that you guys succeed. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.